0: Well, as we sang this morning, uh, this demands all of our life, all that we are. We are concluding the Sermon on the Mount, our series through the Sermon on the Mount this morning. It feels like we've run a little bit of a marathon. We've been in this since February, and here we are near the end of August, uh, taking uh, chapters five, six, and seven in the Gospel of Matthew and slowly working through them. The reason being, we have worked so methodically through the Sermon on the Mount is that it is arguably the best and most important sermon ever. Outside of the proclamation of the resurrection, we could make the argument that the Sermon on the Mount is the most influential and impactful sermon ever. The reason being is because it's the only sermon of Jesus that we have. So these are words that we should pour over with our lives It's not the best sermon because it necessarily is the most emotionally compelling or it's the easiest to read or we have our five steps to a better life, but it's the best and most impactful sermon because of who spoke it in Jesus. It says at the end of this passage that Jesus spoke with authority and that we are to be not only hearers of his word, but doers of the word. Jesus spoke differently because he had authority. Jesus will say things like, you've heard it said, but I say. Jesus says that people will come to me on the last day and stand before me. And this leaves everyone, it says, astonished. Mouths kind of open astonished. Because it says their, their scribes didn't teach this way. Jesus spoke as one that had authority. So as we close out this passage this morning, as we close out this series on Jesus' sermon, we must pay careful attention not to let Jesus' words pass us by. Not to just put this back on the shelf in the corner and go about our lives, but that this should permeate every fiber of our being. Because like any good pastor, Jesus leaves us with the most pointed application ever. He ends by saying this, Hear my word and do it. That's it. Hear my word and do the word. So this morning, we're going to look at what it means for us to both hear and do the word of Jesus. But first, I want to share a story with you about this small town in Pennsylvania in May of 1889. They uh, had one night with torrential downpour. Ten inches fell in this town over a 24-hour period. Now, it wouldn't seem like that big of a deal. In Pennsylvania, they were in a mountainous area, but the reason it was such a big deal is because a few years prior, some rich, wealthy men had gotten together, purchased some land uh, to build a hunting and fishing camp, and a part of that land was the South Fork Dam. Now, the South Fork Dam was notorious for springing leaks. Year after year would go by, and they were always patching it. And they woke up the next morning and realized that the lake had swollen so much that A patch wasn't going to fix it. In fact, they needed to warn the towns below. So Elias Unger, Elias Unger, he sent word, the president of this hunting club, he sent word via horseback to the town below saying, I need you to evacuate. You need to get out. The dam's about to break. Lives are going to be at stake. The first town, they heeded his warning. They heard what he said, and they reacted. They evacuated their homes. They went up to the sides of the mountain and they survived. The next town, however, did not. They heard his warning, but they did not react. I got some pictures of the town here. It's estimated that when the dam broke, 20 million gallons of water, going 40 miles per hour, 6 feet high, crashed into this town. Now, what's remarkable is that everyone in the first town, they survived. In the second town, over 2,200 people died because they did not heed the warning. To put that into perspective for us, Hurricane Katrina, when it hit both Louisiana and Mississippi, it killed 1,800 people. This dam breaking killed 2,200 people in one town in a matter of minutes because they did not heed the warning. Now we know, if you have lived life for any period of time, You know that there is this process from hearing the word and doing the word. My children, they hear my instruction often, but when it's bedtime, it's tough to get them into that gear to do a little bit extra. Somehow we stall out with the clutch and going from hearing to doing. But what authority does Jesus have that we should listen to his words? Jesus has been setting us up for this. If you remember the past few weeks, What Jesus has been saying, he's given us really tough scenarios. He's told us about a life that needs to walk on the narrow path, find the narrow gate, seek it, stay on the narrow path, and so you're like, okay, where's the gate, where's the path, what do I do? And then next he tells us about prophets that arise up among us and that you'll be able to tell the fruit of your life, the validity of your life by the fruit that it bears, Jesus then turns and says, at the end of your days you'll stand before me. Many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do mighty works? Didn't I prophesy in your name? And he'll say, depart from me for I never knew you. So Jesus has been setting us up for this application where we're wondering, what is it that we do? How do we stay on the narrow path? What is the fruit of my life to look like? And this is what Jesus tells us. To hear his words and to do them. To hear them. And to obey them. And here's why I think Jesus' words left the crowds astonished. I think it's because he spoke like one who had authority, but I think it's also with what he said. If you'll remember when Jesus' Jesus's ministry started, someone was foretelling the coming of Jesus. Who was that? John the Baptist, right? Make way a path for the Lord. Now, we know that John the Baptist was not just saying some pithy statement, but he was quoting out of Isaiah 40, where the Lord speaks to the prophet Isaiah. And the people have been scattered. They've been through exile. And the Lord comes in Isaiah 40 to comfort the people. And Isaiah, listening, he says, what shall I say to comfort the people? How shall I give them your word to comfort them? And the Lord says this, first cry this, Make way a path for the Lord, that even though that they've been through exile, your God reigns. He says, your God reigns, and the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed in the midst of the people, and they will see it. In other words, what Yahweh tells Isaiah to comfort the people is, the Lord reigns, and he's coming. In fact, he's coming, and he's going to be in your midst. You will see the glory of the Lord. And Isaiah says, okay. And Yahweh says, second thing you tell them, cry out this. All flesh is grass, and in all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are like grass. The grass wither, the flower fades. But the word of God will stand forever. So what is he saying? First, that the Lord is coming. His glory is going to be in the midst of his people. And second, you can trust it because the Lord has said it. His word and his word alone stands forever. Now this is what is remarkable here. Jesus' ministry starts with John the Baptist quoting this first promise in Isaiah. And now it ends with Jesus saying, whose word remains forever? It ends with Jesus saying, you should obey whose word? His own word. There's only one word that we obey in Scripture, and that's the Lord's. Now here's Jesus saying, You listen to my word, and you obey it, and you will be like a wise man that builds his house on a rock. The rains come, the storm hits against it, but it will stand forever. Jesus is coming along this promise with Isaiah to say, Here I am, standing in your midst. Listen to my words. Why should we listen to Jesus' words? Because authority is his. But why can we also trust Jesus' words? Why can we trust Jesus' words through the storms of our lives? Because authority is his. Building our lives on the words not only produce a safe life, but a lasting one. Now, if you feel if you're here this morning and you feel like your life is a little aimless, it needs a reset, maybe you've been convicted of sin, you're living in shame, you're still trying to figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, he tells us, hear his words and do his words. Now, the Apostle Paul has probably one of the greatest redemptive stories in history ever. Because Paul was a man that, by all accounts in his life, you would say he's a man that's close to God. His theology's right. He's the Pharisee, like he does everything according to the scripture. But it's such a great story because we knew that while he was both very religious, he was also really far from God. He had good theology, but Paul was off. But by the sheer grace of God, Jesus shows up, saves him, and now here today we read his letters to help shape and change and challenge our lives. Now, Paul is instructing Timothy about false prophets. And to be on guard in the signs that we should be to see to look out for them. And in 1 Timothy 6, he says this if anyone teaches a different doctrine. Now, a doctrine is a system of beliefs. Now, what doctrine is Paul talking about? Is it the doctrine that Baptists hold? Is it the doctrine that Pentecostals hold or Methodists hold? What doctrine is Paul speaking about? What doctrine would a false prophet come and deny? Paul tells us at the very beginning of his, of his letter, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Why do we build our life on the words of Jesus? He came to save sinners. He came to save you. He came to save me. Paul teaches that if anybody teaches contrary to that, they are a false prophet. But notice what the second one here is. So if anyone teaches of a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think Paul here has the sermon on the mount on the brain. Jesus has been instructing believers what it looks like to live in the kingdom. We hold good doctrine. What's the good doctrine? Jesus Christ came to save sinners. How can he do it? Because he is the Lord, like we hold to these good truths and doctrine. But the words of our Lord Jesus should shape and change us. And I think much of the Christian life and what it means to follow Jesus can get lost in what we have distilled the Christian life to be. In our lives, we might look out and we see a cultural Christianity. People who have professed Jesus but do not follow Jesus. People who have wanted to take the get out of hell free card, but their lives are not oriented around Jesus' words. In other words, they have a good doctrine, yes, Jesus saves, but they have not marked their lives around the words of Jesus. They've heard them, but they do not do them. They might hold to conservative values. They might attend church every once in a while. They might be someone that has answered no to going to hell, yes to Jesus, but they're unconcerned with him and his ways. So what does it mean to do the words of Jesus? What does it mean to have works with our faith? Are we to live a more pious life? Here's an example that James gives. And James, as we've noticed, is essentially like a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what James has to say in chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and preserves being no hearer, but forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Looking into the perfect law. We've seen through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus came to say that he is not here to abolish the law and prophets, but he's here to fulfill the law and prophets. John Stott puts it this way, that Jesus doesn't see himself as just another prophet or the greatest prophet, but rather the fulfillment of all prophecy. Jesus is the one in which all of this hinges on. So for us to look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, we must look at what Jesus' words are. And what does Jesus say as a doer on the Sermon on the Mount? These are just a few that I've pulled, not all of them, but be a person that neither breaks relationships or fails to restore broken ones. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we saw the importance of not being a person that breaks relationships. Now, Jesus isn't talking about the friends from college that we've just grown apart from and we've moved into different towns. Jesus is speaking about the relationships in your everyday lives. Are the relationships that are broken, do we have the ability to heal and mend them? What I don't want to say and what I don't want to make light of is that we just pick up the phone and say that we're sorry. I mean, we understand that there have been real hurts, real violations of trust, real abuse. But what I am advocating for is for us to develop a genuine love and concern for those who have access to your life. Is there a relationship that is breaking that you have the ability to heal? Is there someone in your life that you have the ability to come alongside and show them the love of Jesus by how you act, speak, and respond to them and things around you? Can you give them the hope of Jesus by who you are as you follow Jesus? Be a person that neither breaks relationships or fails to restore broken ones. People have wronged us, but let us not be the people that withhold forgiveness. Second. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us to be a person that does not violate violate another's marriage partner either by act or thought. There is one relationship in our lives in the Christian church that stands above the rest. Outside of our relationship with Christ Jesus, it's the relationship with our spouse. Jesus said, or Paul says in Ephesians, that the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife It is an image, it's a taste, it's a a foreshadowing. It points to the gospel and Jesus' love for the church, husbands and wives. We should do everything that we can to protect the relationship, the covenant of our marriage. And this is not just in the way that we act and do, it is primarily one of those ways, but it's also in the way that we think about one another. It's also in the way that we let keep our minds from running to lust. Jesus says we do not violate another's marriage partner, either by act or thought. Jesus tells us to be a doer of the word, to be a person that honors the Lord's name in our speech and conduct. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. We need to be a person that does not retaliate, but returns good for evil. need to be a person who does not exclude your enemies from the love shown to your friends, but to show love to your enemies. Jesus tells us, you want to be a doer of the word? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus tells us to be a person of mercy, to be a person who serves God and God alone, or to distill it down to the most important commandment, love God and love your neighbor. Here's how James sums it up. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is what it means to do good works. This is what it means to hear the royal decree of Jesus and obey his commands. Love the Lord and love one another. This is incredibly difficult. It is a sacrifice of our lives to love people who are not like us, who do not look like us, who do not think like us, but to hear them and love them. A few weeks ago, or maybe it was last, I don't remember, last week or so, uh, I had to go down to New Orleans for uh, to go to uh, seminary, and orientation for one of my seminary classes. And at the end of orientation, uh, one of my friends had ridden down there with me. Um, he's on furlough from uh, overseas missions. And so we rode down into New Orleans because he went to seminary down there. And so He knew the way to go, so we were going down there. And then after uh, I'd done the orientation, we walked into the French Quarter for just a little bit. And as we were walking, uh, there are these people standing outside. And it's quite obviously a woman who we're walking up to, uh, has short shorts on and a tight shirt on. But when we get up to uh, this person, it's not a woman, it's a man um, that has either transitioned or is dressing like a woman. And so... They stop us, and they want to talk to us about uh, LGBTQ rights and things like that. Now, what would have been easy for us in our position is to say, man, y'all are heathens. You're going to hell, and just keep walking on past them. Now, me in these situations, I can freeze up. I don't really know what to do, but my friend Brandon, he's like the person that uh, you don't take if you don't want to get stuck in a 45-minute conversation, because he'll engage with anybody. He'll talk with anybody. He'll tell them about Jesus, whatever it is. Like, Brandon. Brandon's not the person that if you want to just get in quickly, that's not the person you want to take. But Brandon, he stops. And before Brandon even speaks to this person, he lets them share everything that they have to say, the reason that they're advocating for what they're doing, and all of this. And at the end of it, Brandon then has his turn to share of why he believes what he believes, the values that he holds, and how he'll continue to pray for them. Now, in this moment, we didn't win a convert for Jesus. Like, we didn't turn around and, like, someone wasn't getting baptized in this moment. But what Brandon did do, very well, was show the tangible love for Jesus by listening to a person, confronting them where they disagree, and committing to pray for that person. This person in their lives, I'm sure, uh, I don't know it for a fact, has encountered many other Christians that have not been so kind or might have had a more harsh word. But the love of Jesus compels us to share his love with others. Now, given more time, uh, harder conversations might need to happen in that situation, but that's just one tangible way of sharing the love of Christ Jesus and how we interact with one another. Now, these are people that have a lifestyle that would be totally foreign to us. It's totally different. In fact, we, we stand for the values of uh, the nuclear family, a husband and a wife, and these are fabrics, good, strong fabrics, to a good society. We believe that, and we stand for these things. But to love a person with the love of Christ, dictates how we interact with people. Consider the words of James. Paul ends this way in Romans, that the law is fulfilled in our love for one another. Consider your life and what makes you angry. Consider what it is that makes you angry. And is there a person on the other side? And If we start out by saying, I'll love this person if we've started in the wrong place. To be a doer of the word is to love one another. These are the sound words of Jesus Christ. To obey his command is nothing less than to love your enemy, to pray for those who persecute you, to have humility, meekness, and poorness to spirit to do so. To add qualifiers to loving someone is to refute the words of Jesus. To add qualifiers to love someone is to refute the words of Jesus. Just because someone has a different ideology than I do. It does not mean that I'm not called to love them. What is a life centered around Jesus' words? It's to love one another. Now, James is going to continue, and he's going to echo this statement by saying it's faith and works, and you can't say that you have faith and no works. I'll show you my faith by my works. He'll say some will come in and they're hungry, they're poorly clothed, they're lacking in their daily needs, and you say, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them anything, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown your foolish person that faith apart from works is useless? There is some fear and pushback that comes with these words from James because it can instantly make us think, "What have I done enough? Am I doing enough? Does God still love me?" And then it can make me think, "Well, I've got to accrue some work so that God will love me." But that's contrary to scripture. Ephesians says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. There's nothing that you can do while being ungodly to accrue works of righteousness. Jesus loves you. Your faith and your works do not earn earn Jesus' love. God's love is not transactional towards us. But what he is saying, that faith and works are essential to the life of the believer. I've heard it illustrated this way. Replace faith in works with love and kind acts. Do kind acts towards Jessica prove that I love Jessica? No. But if I love Jessica, will it be seen in my kind acts toward her? Will it be seen in my faithfulness and my love towards her? Absolutely. You can't separate the two. Another way to put it is consider breathing. What's more important in the process? Breathing in or breathing out? What's more important? We hear the words of Jesus, we do the words of Jesus. Our faith in Jesus produces us to work. It's like breathing. You can't separate breathing in or breathing out. Next, Jesus says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Now, there are two views, I believe, here in mind for Jesus, both present and future. We do his words now, and doing his words now, might bring a storm in our lives. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that persecution may come. Blessed are you who are persecuted for my namesake. Persecution, the storm of life, may come. And we might look at our lives and say, man, I've tried to be obedient to Jesus. I've followed his way and his words, but my life is in shambles for a life that is... Founded on the rock, it's content in Jesus. It does not mean storms won't come, but it does mean that we are steady in the will of Jesus. But then also, it has a future thought to it. There are several Old Testament connections here uh, that Jesus, I think, is grabbing onto to show the scope of his words. First, the obedient disciple is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. This rock symbolizes a place of safety and security. Here are the words out of Psalm 27 I believe Jesus is pulling from. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my enemies go and stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart is not afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, still I am confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. For he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. Notice the psalmist is not expecting a life free from adversity. But in the day of adversity, in the day Where death overtakes him, he will be safe because the Lord is his salvation. And notice what he seeks. Is it not the kingdom of God? Is it not what Jesus has been pushing us to? Next, Jesus says, the wind and the rains came. The Old Testament frequently uses the metaphor of storms to depict divine wrath. Jeremiah 23 says, look, a storm from the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling storm. It will whirl about our heads of the wicked. The Lord's anger will not turn back. Until he has completely fulfilled the purposes of his heart. Hiding your life in the words of Jesus means that you hide yourself in the righteousness only he provides. If Jesus came to fulfill the law and prophets, righteousness is fulfilled in him and in him alone. And this is where we end the sermon. Jesus has talked about staying on the narrow way, bearing good fruit of our lives, coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? How do we stand firm? How do we stand on the rock? By hearing his words and doing his words. Now, there is a danger that we hear the words of Jesus and we don't do them. There's a danger that we become too familiar with Jesus' teachings, but we don't let them transform and change us. We confess right doctrine, but we don't hold to the sound words of Jesus, as Paul says, for life and godliness. We believe good, even the demons believe, and they shudder. Let the doctrine and the sound words of Jesus lead us to loving God and loving others. This is how we know that we're bearing good fruit. Do you love God and love others? So here are three points of application for us uh, this morning. And it would be foolish of me to pull any other application outside of the sermon than what Jesus has already pulled. First one is to hear the word. For us to be able to do the word, we must hear the word. For us to be able to do the word, we must know the word. The psalmist says is that the man that's a firm tree is the one that delights and meditates in the law of the Lord. The seasons change, but he remains firm. To do the words of Jesus, we must hear and know his words, meditate on them, delight in his words. This past Thursday at Joy Lunch, we shared a meal together uh, over in the reception area. And it was really a sweet time uh, because we had about 15 or 20 of us in there. And at the end of it, we just passed around hymnals and we shouted out numbers and sang some hymns from uh, some of our favorite hymns. Some that we hadn't sang in a while, some that you know, and everybody sang out really good. But what was neat about that is that this was a moment where people were showing what they have hidden and tied on their heart. Growing up in my family, Every uh, time we would go to my grandparents' house, we would always sing the doxology before we prayed and ate. And as a little kid, I still remember looking around at all of my family as we would sing the doxology. And that was a way of showing me as a young child the worship that my family had. I was able to bind those words to my heart. And I bind those words to my children's heart now. We were riding on the four-wheeler a couple of days, well, it's probably a couple of months ago now, I had Daisy in my lap, Russell was on the back, and it was right near dusk. And without any prompting, Daisy looks up into the the sky, and you know what she starts to sing? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him, above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now, does Daisy truly understand those words? No. But it's a process of instilling them on her heart that she delight in the Lord. We hide the words of the Lord in our heart. At Joy Lunch, my mom shared a story. Oh, it was so sweet. It was of her grandmother. And when she had gotten near the end of her life, she had become nonverbal, and her eyes would remain shut most of the time when they'd come and visit And so they'd come and visit and they'd talk with her, but she really wouldn't speak back. But as they'd sit on her bedside, you know what they'd do often is recite scripture. And when they would, her eyes would start to open up and she'd start to recite the scripture with them. If they sang a hymn, her eyes would open up and she'd start to whisper the hymn with them. How can she do this? Because she's hidden the word in her heart. She's heard it. She's delighted in it. And when the storm of death was near, she stood firm. We hide the word of the Lord in our heart. Second, we want to be doers of the word. It is incredibly hard to love others. Mercy and forgiveness is hard, but this is the command of our Lord. It takes wisdom and understanding. It takes great faith and work in Jesus but when we understand the great love of Christ for us, we die to ourselves. Listen to Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Imagine if we had this emphasis as a church, that it's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives In me, the love of Christ for others in me exuded in my life. It's no longer I that live, no no longer what my uh, motives are, no matter what it is that I want, but Christ that lives in me to love and do and seek his kingdom, to love others. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. The life I now live in the body, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God. How does he live by faith? By being crucified and Christ living in him. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why can we, our lives, be crucified with Christ? How could it be that I no longer live, but Christ that lives in me when we recognize and see the great love of Jesus for ourselves? When we recognize and see the great need of love, uh, of sin in our lives and the love that we need for Jesus to cover us. When we understand this, It produces within us a meekness and a poorness of spirit, a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And that makes us blessed. We're blessed when we hear these things and we do these things. We are in Christ. How far was Christ willing to go for those who hated him? How far was Christ willing to go for those who despised him? Did he get to the cross and say, forget it. You obviously don't want this. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to be tortured. No. Christ obeyed the will of the Father because of his great love for the Father and his great love for us, even though they despised him, they hated him, they rejected him, they spit on him. How now should we live in relation to our enemy? To those that we disagree with, should we not love them in the same manner? Fourth century church father Jerome shares a story in his commentary on Galatians about the beloved disciple John. Uh, John is one of the only disciples that did not get killed but lived a long life. And it's said in church history, according to Jerome, that John uh, lived in Ephesus until extreme old age. His disciples would carry him to church or to their gathering, and he was so old that he could barely muster the words to speak. But during some individual gatherings, he would usually say something if they asked him. And this is what he would say. Little children, love one another. The disciples and brothers in attendance, Jerome says, would get annoyed because they always heard the same words, to love one another. And finally they asked him, teacher, why do you always say this? And he replied by saying this, because it's the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. Love one another. Be a person of mercy. Love in Christ's righteousness. I don't know where it is difficult in your life to love those. Maybe it's a boss from your path. Maybe it's someone that disagrees with you on politics or theology. What would it take for you to love them, to forgive them, to show them mercy? This is our call. And the last one here remain firm in the storms of this life by trusting in the life, work, and authority of Jesus. Jesus has the authority, His word remains the same. So here's what this means I don't know why bad things have happened to you in your life. I don't know why necessarily maybe some marriages have failed, maybe sickness has come and taken a loved one, maybe your life is in shambles and ruins, I don't know. I don't know necessarily all the details of why this has happened in your life. But here's what I do know. I do know that it's not because God's out to get you. God doesn't send sickness to you because he's out to get you. God sent his son Jesus because of his great love for you. He's not out to get you. I don't know why bad things have happened in your life, why sickness has come, why your health may be in decline, but I do know it's not because God doesn't love you, and it's not because God doesn't know you. God knows every detail about our lives. He knows all of the hidden sin and shame that we have, and he still sent his son for us. I don't know why the storms of this life have come in this season for you and at this particular moment, but here's what I do know. That the storm of God's wrath will pass over you if you are founded in the resurrected love and righteousness of Jesus Christ. That if you put your hope in him alone, that you believe in Christ Jesus as Lord and you commit your life to his obedience, to love God and love others, to hear his word, to do his word, or how we have called it at Alpine, to know him and to make him known. How do we know him and his love? We hear his word. How do we make him known? By loving others. One day, I will no longer be pastor here at Alpine. One day, I'll either die or retire or get old or whatever happens. I don't know. But one day, I'll no longer be pastor here at Alpine. But here's what I hope it can be said as we look back on our ministry now here at Alpine that we had such a great faith, that we heard the words of Jesus so clearly that it was evident in our love for a broken and lost community, that we were gentle and kind, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love because this is the character of the Father and this is who we are called to be. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that we do not pass over your words quickly but, Father, that we pour over them the sound words of Jesus. Father, that we have good doctrine, we hear the sound words of Jesus, and we live a life of godliness. Father, equip us to do so by your Spirit. Father, encourage us by the community of your people here at Alpine. Help us to encourage, exhort, and push one another along the narrow way to keep our mind's eye solely focused on you. Father, help us to trust in you that we can be vulnerable enough to love one another, that we can be vulnerable enough to seek the good of our community. Father, that we can love one another even though it might mean persecution. So Jesus, I pray that we stand firm in this, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word remains forever. Thank you that your word became flesh and dwells among us. Thank you for Jesus, his life, and what he offers for us. It's your name we pray, amen.